Section 71 of The Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Denham. Chapter 18 The Church and Reform by R. V. Lawrence. Part five. The twenty-first public session was at length held on July twenty-one, fifteen sixty-two, and the decrees on the Eucharist and on reform were solemnly published, the questions of the possibility of granting the chalice, and the nature of the obligation of residence being skilfully avoided. The Council went on to discuss the doctrine of the Mass, and further decrees dealing with reform were drawn up. The imperial ambassadors, who throughout the Council displayed little tact, pressed on the legates an immediate consideration of the Emperor's demands for the use of the chalice in Germany. The Pope all along had not felt strongly on the point, and so persistent was the German demand that he was prepared to accede to it. The Spanish and Italian opposition to the concession was, however, very strong, and Lénez threw all his influence into the scale against it. He read a lengthy theological treatise on the subject, and influenced many votes. In these circumstances it would have been wise for the Emperor to proceed cautiously, and not run the risk of an open defeat. The ambassadors, however, thought otherwise, and on August 22 the Cardinal of Mantua submitted the Emperor's proposal to the Council. The voting took place on September 6, when twenty-nine voted in the affirmative simply, thirty-one in the affirmative with the proviso that the matter should be referred to the Pope, nineteen were in favour of its being granted in Hungary and Bohemia alone, thirty-eight rejected it absolutely, ten did the same, but desired to leave the definite decision to the Pope, twenty-four were in favour of its being left to the Pope without the Council expressing an opinion, and fourteen thought the matter not yet ripe for decision. It was a discouraging result for the imperial ambassadors, but they made one more effort and moved a decree recommending to the Pope the request of the Emperor. This was, however, rejected by seventy-nine to sixty-nine. The Cardinal of Mantua, however, came to the rescue, to avoid a breach with the Emperor, and on September sixteen moved to refer the matter simply to the Pope, without any expression of opinion on the part of the Council. Simonetta gave his support to this proposal, and it was carried by ninety-eight votes to thirty-eight. The Emperor thus, at the best, could get nothing from the Council, and was referred back to the Pope. At the twenty-second public session, which took place on the following day, September 17, 1562, the decrees on the Mass and a series of minor reforms were approved, but even then 
thirty-one bishops voted against any reference of the question of the chalice to the Pope. The council then took up the discussion of the sacrament of orders. Though there was little disagreement as to the nature of the grace conferred in ordination, yet the question of the relations of the various members of the hierarchy to one another and to the Pope was likely to cause difficulty, and troubled waters were soon again entered upon. The French and imperial ambassadors protested against any further definition of dogmas, and demanded that the council should await the arrival of the French and German bishops who were on their way. A thorough reform of the church might then be entered upon. They further complained of the haste in which proceedings were conducted. The legates only communicated the decrees on reform to the bishops two days before the general congregations, and it was impossible to examine them properly in that time. The legates returned an evasive answer, and the discussions on the sacrament of orders were proceeded with. The papal legion was strengthened by the arrival of more Italian bishops, and at the same time several of the more independent prelates left Trent. The Spaniards felt that it was necessary to assert themselves again, and on November 3 the Archbishop of Granada propounded the view that bishops were the vicars of Christ by the divine law under his chief vicar, the Bishop of Rome. This raised the whole question of the Pope's supremacy, and an angry debate ensued. The Bishop of Segovia went so far as to say that the supremacy of the Bishop of Rome was unknown to the primitive Church. Lainez again made himself the chief advocate of the papal prerogative, and displayed a violent hostility to the episcopate. In the midst of these discussions the Cardinal of Lorraine arrived with twelve French bishops and three abbots on November 13. 1562. The attitude which he would adopt was eagerly awaited by both parties. On November 23 the Cardinal appeared in the Assembly, and in a speech made similar demands to those made by the Emperor in the Libel of Reformation, and a little later declared himself in favour of the divine right of the Episcopate. On January 2, 1563, the French demands were formally presented to the legates. The articles were thirty-four in number, and embraced most of the proposals previously demanded by the Emperor. They suffered the same fate as his, and were simply forwarded to Rome for consideration. It was now obvious to all that the papacy had no intention of carrying out any reforms of importance. The papal policy was clearly expressed in a letter of Borromeo to the legates, in which he informed them that they must keep two objects in sight, that of strengthening the papal power over the council, and that of procuring its speedy dissolution. To this intent, 
the legates endeavoured to have the pope described as rector universalis ecclesiae in the canon dealing with the episcopate but owing to the opposition of the cardinal of lorraine they failed the interminable discussions continued month after month passed by and nothing was done at the beginning of february ferdinand had moved to innsbruck with the object of being nearer the scene of affairs the legates thereupon sent commendoni to see him and endeavour to come to some understanding his embassy however had little success and he soon returned to trent all turned now upon the action of france and the emperor on february twelfth fifteen sixty three the cardinal of lorraine journeyed to innsbruck to confer with ferdinand and there he found assembled with the emperor maximilian king of the romans albert v duke of bavaria and the archbishop of salzburg the cardinal in a memorandum which he presented to the emperor attributed the barren result of the council to the fact that only matters which had been approved of at rome were allowed to be decided at trent the overwhelming majority of italian bishops and the fact that the right of initiative rested with the legates alone prevented any real reform as a remedy the cardinal suggested that the ambassadors should have the right of making proposals directly to the council and that a larger number of non-italian bishops should be sent for to counterbalance the italian majority above all the emperor should come in person to trent and exercise his influence upon the council ferdinand however saw little hope in these proposals it was a practical impossibility to find any other non-italian bishops who would go to trent and his own presence would give the papal party an opportunity of raising the cry that the council was not free to attempt to give the ambassadors a right of initiative in the council would only lead to the breaking up of the assembly the emperor was in fact fast losing hope of obtaining any good from the council the failure to obtain the concession of the chalice from the council in september fifteen sixty two was a great disappointment to him and the slow progress that the council had made since that time filled him with despair at the beginning of march fifteen sixty three he turned to the pope instead of to the council in the hope of persuading him to bring about some effective reforms the pope threw all the blame for the delay upon the council and especially upon the spanish bishops for raising theoretic and useless questions in this way one country could be played off against another the papacy perceived however that ferdinand's confidence in the council was much shaken and determined to send a cardinal to innsbruck to endeavour to alienate him from it still further meanwhile at trent still further delay was caused by the death of two of the legates 
the Cardinal of Mantua died on March 2, and Cardinal Serapando on March 17, 1563. Cardinal Dalton had returned to Rome some time previously, and Simonetta and Hosius did not care to act alone. They accordingly wrote to the Pope asking that two new legates might be sent. The papal choice fell upon Morone and Navagero. The former was now a devoted servant of the papacy, and had re-established his reputation for orthodoxy. He was, however, very acceptable to the emperor, and the moderate party still had some hopes of him. Navagero, on the other hand, was an open adherent of the curial party. The new legates arrived at Trent on April 13, 1563. Morone, after an introductory discourse to the assembled fathers, at once set out for Innsbruck. The Jesuit father, Canisius, was with the emperor, and acted as the agent of the Roman court in the imperial entourage. This remarkable man, the first German Jesuit, was perhaps the ablest of the leaders of the Catholic reaction in Germany. Alike at Cologne, where he withstood the influence of the Archbishop Hermann von Wied, and at Ingolstadt, where in 1550 he became rector of the university, he turned back the advancing tide of Protestantism. In 1552, Ferdinand, then King of the Romans, had summoned him to Vienna, and Canisius soon obtained considerable influence over him. At Ferdinand's request, Canisius drew up a catechism, which was translated into many languages, and from which thousands were instructed in the rudiments of the Catholic faith. His Summer Doctriniae Christianae became the textbook of Catholic teachers and preachers throughout Germany. When Ignatius set up a province of his society in Upper Germany, it was only natural that he should place Canisius at its head. Directly Canisius heard of the arrival of Morone at Trent, he sent urgent messages to him to come to Innsbruck as soon as possible. France and Spain had not yet agreed upon active cooperation with the Emperor, but with so many objects in common an agreement as to a course of action might occur at any moment. Canisius skilfully prepared the way for Moroni. He pointed out to Ferdinand that by an amicable arrangement with the Holy Father he might obtain more than he would ever get from the council. Ferdinand began to waver. His previous policy had ended in failure. Philip had been unmoved by his warning that reform of the rites and ceremonies of the Church, and not only of its discipline, was necessary to preserve Germany to the Church. By means of the Council, he had achieved nothing. Moroni now arrived with the definite offer of the concession of the chalice directly the council should be terminated, and Ferdinand was won over. He agreed to give the legates his support, and declared himself content with the minor reforms that the legates proposed to put before the council. 
the papacy had thus gained the first step. It remained to come to terms with the Cardinal of Lorraine and Philip II. Morone returned to Trent on May 27, and the discussions on the Sacrament of Orders were actively resumed. It was finally decided to avoid all mention of the disputed points as to the direct divine origin of episcopal authority, and whether residence was jure divino or not. The decrees in this ambiguous form were published at the 23rd public session, on July 15, 1563. The difficulties of the legates were, however, not yet over. Philip sent to the council a new ambassador, the Count de Luna, who was instructed to demand anew the suppression of the formula proponentibus legatis, and pressed forward the formulation of doctrine and a thorough reform of discipline. But the emperor gave his support to the legates, and the situation remained unchanged. National feeling now ran very high, and a dispute as to precedence between the French and Spanish ambassadors nearly brought the council to an end. The state of tension is well illustrated by the interjection of a member of the Curialist party after a French prelate had denounced the abuses of the Roman court. Ascabie Hispana insidimus in morbum Gallicum. Meanwhile, efforts were being made to draw the Cardinal of Lorraine over to the papal party. A man of little sincerity, able and ambitious, he considered his own interests alone. After the death of his brother, the Duc de Guise, and the conclusion of the Treaty of Amboise, his position was not very secure at home, and in those circumstances the friendship of the Holy See was not to be despised. The papal diplomacy began its work early in the year 1563, and by the end of June the cardinal was won over. Through his influence the French government agreed in August to the council being brought to an end on the terms which the emperor had accepted. The French bishops meekly followed the lead of the cardinal, and ceased to oppose the policy of the legates. The Spaniards alone remained, and agreement with them was not so easy. They were the Puritans of the council. Political expediency had no meaning to them. As they could not be bought, the only thing for the papacy to do was to outmanoeuvre them. Direct appeals to Philip II to consent to the council being brought to an end failed, so there was, for the time being, nothing to be done but to allow the council to occupy itself in matters which were comparatively of little importance. The sacrament of matrimony was discussed, and its nature defined. The marriage of priests was forbidden, without any opposition, though the imperial ambassadors made a feeble protest. The question of clandestine marriages gave some trouble. 
They had admittedly given rise to great abuses, but the view that the sacraments were ipso facto operative, ex opere operato, drove many of the prelates to advocate their recognition. Finally, however, they were, by 133 votes to 59, declared invalid. The work of reform was also continued. The legates brought forward a series of decrees for the reform of the morals and discipline of the clergy. They involved the abandonment by the curia of many valuable privileges, but at the same time they entrenched upon the rights of the state. To ecclesiastical tribunals powers were assigned which no government could afford to tolerate. The rights of patrons were interfered with, and immunities of the clergy which had long been abandoned in practice were again claimed. The Catholic powers for once united in their protests, and the more extravagant claims were withdrawn in consequence. The conduct of the Cardinal of Lorraine in this matter shows how completely he had thrown in his lot with the Holy See. He had visited Rome in September, and his head was completely turned by the flattery which he received. He went so far as to advise the French government to submit to some of the extravagant claims put forth on behalf of the clergy, but his advice was not followed. The council now resolved itself into chaos. The control of the legates became little more than nominal. Pius himself had consented to a reform of the cardinals being included in the general reform of the clergy, but the Italian episcopate were not willing to see what they regarded as the privileges of their nation swept away. They succeeded in reducing the proposed reforms of the sacred college to a mere shadow. The French ambassadors withdrew to Venice, hopeless of any good coming out of such an assembly. The firmness of the Spanish bishops, however, prevented the scheme of reform being completely nullified by reservations and exceptions, and on November 11, 1563, the 24th public session was held, and the decree on matrimony and 21 out of the 42 decrees on reform proposed by the legates were promulgated, the remaining decrees being deferred to a later session. Everything was now subordinated to bringing the council to an end. The papacy ordered the legates to withdraw the proposals which infringed the rights of the state, and canons dealing with the remaining matters under discussion were drawn up with feverish haste. Purgatory, the invocation of saints, and indulgences were hastily defined, and twenty more decrees of reformation were prepared. The Spanish ambassador and the Spanish bishops maintained their protests to the end, but with no avail. A rumour that the Pope was dying hastened matters still further. The twenty-fifth session was opened on December 3, 1563, 
and on December 4 the council was brought to an end amid the acclamations of the assembled fathers. Two hundred and fifty-five members of the council signed its decrees. The four legates, Cardinal Madruzzo and the Cardinal of Lorraine, three patriarchs, twenty-five archbishops, one hundred and sixty-eight bishops, seven abbots, seven generals of orders, and thirty-nine who were absent represented by their proctors. With the close of the Council of Trent, the determination of the principles which were to regulate the reorganization of the Catholic Church was completed. There followed, under the direction of the papacy, an application and working out in detail of those principles, which was a task of many years, but the struggle was over, and the battle won. Medieval theology had been emphatically restated. The scission of Christendom into two halves, each going its own way regardless of the other, was definitely confirmed. The spirit of dogmatic certainty, which drew its chief nourishment from Spanish soil, and of which the Society of Jesus was the clearest expression, was to be the predominating influence for the future in the Church. Her doctrine was now completely articulated for the first time. Matters which the medieval Church had left to the speculations of the schools were now authoritatively settled, and the Church was provided with a logical presentation of her position, definitely marking it off from all other circles of ideas. The issues had been put before the world, and it remained for Catholicism and Protestantism to fight the battle to the bitter end. Though the triumph of the Counter-Reformation thus enabled the Church to present a united front as against Protestantism, it is not true that all opposition to the prevailing tendencies within the Church had been silenced. Many of the dogmatic decrees of Trent were as such a compromise. The great decree on justification preserved room in the Church for those Augustinian ideas which the Church had never been completely able to assimilate, and which found subsequent expression in Jansenism. Great as was the influence of the Jesuits at Trent, they did not succeed in winning a complete triumph for their theology. This was not, however, of so great consequence as might appear, for all particular dogmas were beginning to sink into the background, compared with the one great principle that the use and wont of the Roman Church is law, and that to the Pope alone appertains the right to expound the teaching of the Church. The complete expression of this principle was impossible at Trent. The hostile elements were too strong, but the way was laid open. The papal supremacy over the Church received a new extension as the result of the work of the Council. The confirmation of the Pope was acknowledged to be necessary for the validation of its decrees. The supreme power in the universal Church was admitted to rest in the Roman pontiffs.
they were the vicars of Christ on earth. The attempt to enunciate the direct divine authority of the episcopate was frustrated. The Vaticanum was only the logical outcome of certain elements in the Tridentinum. The decrees on Reformation successfully removed the worst abuses which had brought the Church and the clergy into contempt. The authority of the bishops over their clergy, both secular and regular, was considerably strengthened, and means were provided for the removal of evil livers and the incompetent. The parochial clergy were compelled to preach, and the whole discipline of the church was improved. The practical reform, however, that was most far-reaching in its results was probably the establishment of seminaries for the education of the clergy in each diocese. This measure provided the church with an adequate supply of trained men for its service, and removed the reproach which had formerly rested on the clerical state. At the same time, it made the clergy a body more distinct from the laity than they had ever been before. It narrowed the interests of the clergy, and made them, to a considerable extent, the blind instruments of their superiors. Together with the system of celibacy, it separated the clergy from the ordinary social life of the people, and accentuated the division between the church and the modern world. The council left to the papacy the right of interpreting its decrees, and Pius the Fourth hastened to enunciate this principle in the bull Benedictus Deus, January 26, 1564, which confirmed its proceedings. No prelate was to publish any gloss upon the decrees of the council, or venture to interpret them, without papal authorization. In 1588, Sixtus V set up a special congregation of the Council of Trent to supervise the carrying out of its decisions. Meanwhile, the papacy anxiously endeavoured to persuade the Catholic powers to accept in their entirety the decrees of the council. But with the decrees on doctrine, governments did not concern themselves. They were accepted throughout the Catholic Church, but with the decrees on discipline, it was different. Even in the modified form which they received after the protests of the ambassadors, they infringed many ancient rights of the secular power in various countries, rights which it was not likely would be easily abandoned. In the end, the decrees on discipline were only accepted in their entirety by the Emperor Ferdinand for his hereditary dominions, by Portugal, and by the King of Poland. France and the Empire never accepted them, while Spain and Venice received them with a reservation of their own rights which had practically the same effect. There were limits beyond which no modern state would allow the papal claims to go. The tasks which the council had left to the Pope were actively taken in hand. 
the breviary and the missal were revised, and a new edition of the Corpus Juris Canonici was published. A purification of church music was begun. A commission of eight cardinals was appointed on August 2, 1564, and in Palestrina a genius arose who became the founder of modern church music. His famous Missa di Papa Marcello, performed before the commission on April 28, 1565, subordinated the music to the words, and substituted a dignified and masterly simplicity for the florid and decadent style which had hitherto characterized ecclesiastical music in Rome. The most important task left to the papacy was, however, the preparation of an index of prohibited books. So early as 1479, Sixtus IV had empowered the University of Cologne to inflict penalties on printers, purchasers, and readers of heretical books. This was confirmed and extended by the bull Intermultiplices of Alexander VI in 1501. At the Fifth Lateran, Leo X, in 1515, authorized the Master of the Sacred Palace to act as censor in Rome and the Papal States, and the Inquisition, in 1453, began to regard the censorship as one of its functions. The first lists of prohibited books were, however, drawn up in 1546 and 1550, at Louvain, and in 1549 at Cologne, and by the Sorbonne between 1544 and 1551. The first papal index was that of Paul IV, which was published in 1559. It was arranged alphabetically, but under each letter came three categories. The first class consisted of the heresiarchs, all of whose writings were prohibited. This was a mere list of names. The second class consisted of writers, some of whose productions, which were enumerated, tended to heresy, impiety, magic, or immorality. The third class consisted of writings, chiefly anonymous, which were unwholesome in doctrine. The index of Paul the Fourth met with much opposition, and Naples, Milan, Florence, and Venice refused to print or enforce it. Pius the Fourth modified it in fifteen sixty one by allowing the use of non Catholic editions of the Fathers and other inoffensive writings to licensed readers, provided comments by heretics of the first class had been previously erased. No index expurgatorius, however, as distinguished from an index librorum prohibitorum, was ever published officially at Rome. The harder work of pointing out particular passages which must be deleted was only undertaken in Spain. The papacy contented itself with prohibiting books altogether, or with a donec corrigitur of which nothing came. 
the Index Librorum Prohibitorum of Paul the Fourth was, however, condemned at Trent as a bad piece of work, and a commission was appointed to revise it. Ten rules to be observed were drawn up, but the work itself was left to the papacy. The new index was published by the papacy in March 1564, and is known as the Tridentine Index. The index of Paul the Fourth was improved, and some of its worst blunders removed. It was accepted by Portugal, Belgium, Bavaria, and parts of Italy. In 1571, Pius V set up a special congregation of the index distinct from the Inquisition, and in 1588 this body was empowered by Sixtus V to undertake further revision of the index. Twenty-two new rules took the place of the ten laid down at Trent, and this new index was published in 1590. Shortly after its publication, however, Sixtus V died, and Clement VIII restored the Tridentine rules and issued another index in 1596. The materials collected for the index of 1590 were used, though the Spanish index of Quiroga, published in 1584, was one of the chief sources. The index of 1596 remained the standard, though additions were made to it, until the middle of the 18th century. So far as the southern nations were concerned, the index achieved its work. The peoples who continued to adhere to the Catholic Church were cut off from the culture and science of the North, and a serious blow was dealt to human progress. It was impossible for such measures to succeed ultimately, but for a time at any rate they were a serious hindrance to the advance of knowledge. The learned Jesuit Canisius, in a striking letter written to the Duke of Bavaria in 1581, printed in Reuss's Great History of the Index, pointed out the futility of such measures. Repression by edicts and indexes could never succeed. Construction was needed, as well as destruction, and good authors must be provided to take the place of bad. A revival of Catholic scholarship, such as Canisius advocated, marked the close of the sixteenth century, a revival in which his own order played a prominent part. Rome became again a centre of Christian learning, and the annals of Baronius were worthy to stand by the centuries of Magdeburg. New editions of the Fathers were prepared. In 1587 appeared the Roman edition of the Septuagint, and both Sixtus V and Clement VIII endeavoured to improve the text of the Vulgate. Historical scholarship ceased to be the monopoly of one party. The Jesuits were the equals in learning of their adversaries, and their educational system was immeasurably superior. Protestantism in Germany 
was torn asunder by petty feuds, and by sheer force of superior ability and unremitting labour, Catholicism was restored, first in the Rhinelands and then on the Danube. The story of this work, the success of which drove Protestantism to desperation and assisted to provoke the Thirty Years' War, is beyond our scope. It is sufficient to notice here that it was the fruit of that new Catholicism which emerged triumphant from the Council of Trent. Saintliness of life and the beauty of holiness were again exhibited to the world in a Carlo Borromeo and a Filippo Neri, while Protestantism was too often sinking into a time-serving Erastianism, or developing an arid scholasticism of its own, which quenched the springs of religious life. Increased centralization in government, and strict definition of dogma, made Catholicism after Trent a far more powerful fighting force than it had ever been before, but it was only at the price of drawing in its borders and limiting its sympathies. There is a curious likeness in essence, though in forms of expression they are poles asunder, between Puritanism in England and the movement of which Carafa and Ignatius are the typical representatives in the Roman Church. Both alike subordinate the wider interests of humanity to the supposed requirements of religious faith. The sacred was rigidly marked off from the profane, and the culture of the world and its wisdom were banned and avoided as evil in themselves. The world was given up as hopeless, and the attempt to separate its evil from its good was abandoned. The work which Clement of Alexandria and Origen had begun for the ancient church, and Thomas Aquinas and the great schoolmen had achieved for the church of the Middle Ages, was not done anew for the modern world. The true Renaissance was not absorbed into the circle of ecclesiastical ideas, and the medieval conception of Catholicity was limited rather than widened. The modern world, if not actually hostile to the church, grew up apart from it, and by its side rather than under its influence. The kingdom of intellectual unity, which Raffaelli had depicted for Julius II on the walls of the Vatican, was not realized. The leaders of the Christian Renaissance had not the moral enthusiasm or the force of character necessary for the task. As the gentle Andrews and the gracious Falkland had to give way before the sterner enthusiasm and the narrow pedantry of Lord, which in its turn fell before a more single-minded but still narrower creed, so Contarini and his associates abdicated the leadership to Ignatius and Carafa. Neither Pole nor Morone had the spirit of martyrdom, and freedom could not triumph without its role of martyrs. It was left to the sects in the future to vindicate the rights of conscience, and to extort by force from without what liberal churchmen had failed to achieve 
within the church. There was a touch of the dilettante spirit in the aristocratic circles of the Catholic reformers in Italy at the opening of the sixteenth century, which paralysed their efforts and enervated their moral fibre. The movement was too academic to influence the world effectively. Some of its members fell into the sins which they themselves had denounced, and like Cortese ended their lives in joining in the hunt for benefices. The rest contented themselves with a lower ideal as best they could, and stood helplessly aside. The church was reformed, and underwent a moral regeneration, but religious and intellectual freedom were left further off than ever. The issues at stake were, however, made clear, and the parties in the great struggle were definitely marked out. A modus vivendi between authority and liberty could not be found. Neither would tolerate the other, and Europe was doomed to be the battlefield of the contending principles. The sword alone could be the arbiter. End of section 71. Recording by Tom Denham.